Some of the most iconic stories in history are love stories, aren't they? They grab our attention. Not only that, they tug on our heartstrings a little too, don't they? They pull us in. Now, I know not everyone likes love stories, or I would probably be more accurate if I were to say that not everyone likes to admit that they like love stories. That's, that's probably a little bit more accurate there. But even if we aren't a fan of the genre, you and I are bound to be drawn into a story that has a man and a woman falling in love because it is such a huge part of the human experience. I think the love stories that appeal to us the most are the ones where there's an obstacle to the couple getting together, and then the man makes a huge sacrifice to break down the barrier that is keeping them from having a relationship. We just, we just love to see that level of commitment. We love to see that level of sacrifice. And as we continue through the story of Jacob's life, this is what we're going to find, this kind of a love story. The adventurous journey that has been the life of Jacob has led us to a point where he is finally about to find a bride, this bride he has been seeking from the godly line so that the, the, so that the covenant promises of God can continue, so that God's faithfulness can be shown. And so as we land in the first part of the 29th chapter of Genesis, we're, we're going to break the story down into three parts. The first thing that we're going to see is that God ordains that Jacob meets Rachel. Now, God has promised to keep Jacob safe. And so we're going to see God's providential hand guiding Jacob's journey as he finds Rachel. And we're going to see some parallels with how his father, Isaac, met Rebekah. And in this, we see that God is providing for Jacob what he has promised. Secondly, we're going to find that Jacob loves Rachel, and he is willing to serve and to labor and to sacrifice in order to have her hand in marriage. And we're going to see how his willingness to serve and to do so patiently and willingly points us to the saving work of the Lord Jesus. And finally, we're going to see that Jacob is deceived. Laban pulls a dirty trick on Jacob, but Jacob does not retaliate. Instead, he continues to serve. He continues to love Rachel. And with our arrival in chapter 29, what we have here is another big story, a lot of verses. And so we're not going to be digging into the little details of this story today. Instead, we're going to see how it fits into the larger story. And so we're going to start off looking at verses 1 through 8 of chapter 29 this morning. And we've seen already that, that Jacob is journeying. He's, he's heading to the land of his mother's family. We, we aren't told here that he's familiar with this land. There's no indication here that every Thanksgiving they got in the station wagon and sang over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go to renew all of these relationships that they had with their family. In fact, we see the exact opposite. There's, there's not a deep bond with familiarity here. It's a deep bond that's based upon the fact that they know that they're family, that they're related to one another. And so we get a sense here that, that Jacob is heading to a land that is foreign to him. And we see that because what it says here is that Jacob is coming to the land of the people of the east. Now we remember, we've talked about what being in the east means in Genesis. 
It means that, that you're away from the presence of God. When people are moving away from the presence of God, they're moving east. And so the idea here is that Jacob is going someplace that he's not familiar with to do something he's unsure about. And so we see that he is a stranger in a foreign land, but he's there with a purpose. He's there to find a bride from his mother's family. And we find that he comes to a well. Now, now back, you may remember, back when we looked at Isaac receiving a wife, Abraham's servant went to a well and he found Rebekah. So what's the significance of the wells here? Why, why is Rebekah found at a well and, uh, and he's, she is the wife to Isaac and then Jacob finds his wife, Rachel, at a well? What's the significance here? What's the deal with wells? Well, first, the chances of coming into contact with people around a well was pretty good then, right? Water is a necessity. And if a well is present, there's a likelihood that people are going to gather there because they need what that well provides. Secondly, we have to remember that God is ordaining all of this. These are not random happenstances. And wells represent plenty. And you can understand why in the ancient world, why a well would be a sign of plenty. They represent being fruitful and being able to provide. And so what was the purpose of Abraham's servant finding Rebekah? And what's the purpose of Jacob finding Rachel? To fulfill God's command to be fruitful and to multiply and for God to be able to keep his promise that the family of Abraham, the family of Isaac, and the family of Jacob would be like the sand, that they would have many offspring. And so God ordains, he brings this to pass that the wife of Isaac and the wife of Jacob are found through a well, a symbol of provision, a symbol of abundance. And so we get some interesting details about this well. It has a big stone on the mouth of the well, And that stone is there to protect the well, to keep it from being polluted and filled with dirt. And having arrived at this well, Jacob starts a conversation. And you can kind of imagine how this goes, because it's likely Jacob hasn't seen anyone for a while. He may have even had some interactions with people, but he spoke a different language. He didn't understand them. They couldn't understand him. He's a stranger wandering in a strange place, and he's hoping to find some indication that he's on the right path, that he's going to end up where he's going because he's seeking out a particular people. And so his line of questioning is simple and probably the same way that you and I have conversations when we're other places. How often have you been out and about and someone says to you, where are you from? And you say, I'm from Edgerton. And they'll say, well, do you know so-and-so? Happens all the time, doesn't it? Well, the same thing happens here. He asks the herdsmen where they're from, and they let him know that they're from Haran, and, and so Jacob knows, ah, I'm on to something. His very broad search, his uncertainty, his broad search is being narrowed significantly. If nothing else, he has someone who can take him where he needs to go. But we find that the news is even better than that, don't we? Because they know Laban. And they obviously know him well because they know that Rachel, his daughter, is is coming pretty soon. She's going to be here soon. So Jacob has something to say about how they're tending the flocks. 
They aren't doing things correctly, it would seem. Jacob's giving them advice. It's still high day. It's not time to to get the sheep together yet. They're supposed to be out in the pasture. But then we learn that the reason that they aren't in the pasture is they need to water the sheep. And then they let them out. So So they gather the sheep, then they water them, and then they let them graze. Well, clearly, God has has brought Jacob to this place because he knows that he's going to come into contact with Laban here. And now we have a word that a daughter is coming. Isn't that what Jacob is looking for? Isn't that what he's here for in the first place? And so we see that while it isn't a love story that would play out well on the big screen, I I haven't seen any love stories in the movie theater about somebody meeting somebody at a well, it still is an amazing story of God's providence And how God is leading Jacob because Rachel is on the way. And remember what the original audience of the text would have known. They may not know the story yet, but they know who Jacob's wife is. They know that name. And so they're hearing that Rachel is on the way. And we we see her arrive as we land land in verses 9 through 12. She arrives, and, and Jacob must have thought she was something. Because what does Jacob do? He decides to display quite the feat of strength. Now, you've probably either seen this happen before in your own life, or maybe some of you guys have done something like Jacob did here to press a girl. I'm betting the number's probably pretty high that that most of you did something like this when you were younger to impress a lady. Jacob sees the girl he likes, and he decides, I'm going to show her just how strong I am. And he he removes the, the rock from the well He shows how strong and how awesome he is. You can just imagine the swagger he's got after he does that. See that pretty lady? I moved that rock. But before we get to the result of all this, we need to stop and think about the difference between the first time we saw someone seeking a bride at the well with Isaac's, with the servant of Abraham trying to find Rebekah for Isaac, and what we see now. Do you remember what Abraham's servant did when he arrived at the well? He prayed. He asked for God's uh, provision. He asked for God's insight. He asked that God would would bring to him the woman that would be for Isaac. But what did Jacob do at the well? He he followed what we've known about Jacob so far. We've seen it. This is who Jacob is. Jacob didn't stop and pray and say, God, I'm going to trust you. Jacob showed off. Jacob did it his way, right? Jacob's trying to do things, once again, by his power. But thankfully for him, it does seem to work. God uses that because after Jacob waters the flocks and meets Rachel, he, uh, he kisses her. Now, it's important that we understand here that this isn't meant to be seen as some sort of passionate kiss. Jacob is not forcing himself upon Rachel here, that this isn't that kind of a kiss. This was a customary greeting at the time that family members gave to each other. This isn't, hey, I want to marry you kind of kiss. This is a we are family kind of kiss. And so we see that it was well received because Rachel hears who Jacob is and she goes to tell her father, hey, one of our family members is here. Now we have to remember that we know Jacob is seeking Laban, But Laban doesn't know that Jacob is seeking him out. Rebecca didn't send an email letting them know that Jacob was on the way. Jacob is unaware of what he will find, and Laban isn't even prepared to to meet anyone that he's related to at all. This is a surprise. 
but yet he is glad that he has arrived. And so he hears that his sister's son is there, and he embraces him and kisses him and brings him into the house. Again, we see that this is a family kiss because Laban kisses Jacob. Now remember, we've seen before in Genesis that hospitality is a big deal in the ancient Near East. And so is family. So are these bonds that they have. And so Laban is overjoyed to have Jacob with them. Notice what he says. Surely you are bone, you are my bone and my flesh. They are family. And they immediately have a deep connection, even though they may have never met in their lives. They have this deep connection. And this is so much so that Jacob stays with him a month. Jacob is not just some stranger on the road who wants to marry his daughter He is kin. And so we're told that Laban was hospitable to him by the length of the time that he takes him in for. That that lets us know that Laban is, is hospitable, that he is doing the right thing here. But we find that in the meantime, the story is starting to get very interesting. Now Laban must have heard about the great strength of Jacob. He wasn't just showing off for Rachel. He must have been showing off as a job interview to try and find a job as a shepherd himself, right? And so Laban wants to put Jacob to work, but he doesn't want him to be an unpaid servant. He he wants to do right by him because they're family. And when he asks how much he should be paid, Jacob doesn't go for an hourly wage or even a salary package with great benefits. That isn't his request. He has something more important in mind. He aspires to fulfill the purpose of his trip. He wants a bride, but we find that there is an opportunity here, for some serious drama to develop. As, as we read here, Laban has two daughters, and we read that the older daughter had weak eyes. Now, this, this doesn't mean that she had poor vision. This doesn't mean she needs to go out and get a stronger prescription for her glasses. In the ancient Near East, women would accentuate their eyes to accentuate their beauty. This was an important part of how the people then viewed their attractiveness. So we wouldn't say someone unattractive had weak eyes today. But we're still drawn into someone's eyes, right? We see someone's eyes, and we understand the relationship that it has to attractiveness. We, we get this idea. And so what we have here with Leah is the idea that she wasn't beautiful like Rachel. No matter what you did, you couldn't dress up her eyes to have that spark of attractiveness in there. That's what it means to have weak eyes. No matter how much you try to build them up, it's not going to work. But Rachel, she really caught the attention of Jacob. And so he said that he would work seven years to have her as his wife. He didn't have anything to trade for. He couldn't trade for livestock. He didn't bring gold along to offer Laban. Instead, he offers his life as a servant to make her his bride. And look at the level of love that he has for her. He worked seven years, but it seemed as though it was only a few days because of his love for her. It seemed as only a few days. Now there, there's the love story that we like to hear, right? There might be, be something here that, but that you, there might be some of you here that you heard that line, he worked for seven years, but it felt as though it was only a few days, and you want to go, oh, isn't that sweet? Isn't that a love story? Seven years of servanthood to be with the woman he loves and he finds joy in being a servant to win her hand. And we can't move on 
without seeing how this prefigures our Lord Jesus, how this points us to the love that Jesus has for us. Because Jesus came from heaven to be a servant for us, and he was a servant for us as he suffered and died for his bride, the church. And even though he suffered, what are we told about Jesus? That he found joy in his suffering. He found joy in his servanthood. Remember back to what we saw in the book of Hebrews a few months back. You can see it here. Just as Jacob served for his bride for seven years and found it to be like but a few days, Jesus suffered. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross that he might purchase a bride for himself. What an amazing truth and what an amazing picture of sacrificial love that Jacob has. And it points us to what would one day come from his offspring because Jesus is coming. He is the one. He is the promised one. He is in the covenant line. He is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. And so Jacob shows us how his descendant will have a sacrificial love for his bride, the church. And that he will one day redeem the people of God. He will bring them to himself and he will show this ultimate self-sacrificing love for you and I. What an amazing prefiguring of the love of Jesus here. But as we read the story of this love, it isn't clean, it isn't easy. Some underhanded things take place that test the patience and love of Jacob as we move on to our final point this morning. After all the faithful servanthood that Jacob performs, he asks Laban, hey, can we have the, the wedding feast now? The seven years has passed. It was but as a few days, but I'm ready to go here. Let's, let's have a wedding feast. But Laban is a tricky guy. He goes through all the steps. He plans the feast. He gets the people there. And in the midst of veiling the bride, in the midst of this whole thing happening in the evening in the dark, and I'm guessing, based upon what we know about wedding ceremonies in the ancient Near East, I'm guessing some libations were involved also. This festivity ends up being a sneaky way in which Laban can sneak the weak-eyed Leah into the tent. So in the morning, Jacob is surprised. But there's nothing do he, he can do about this deception because the marriage has been consummated. They are husband and wife. There's nothing they can do. Can you imagine the anger and the rage that must have been boiling up in Jacob. It isn't really expressed in the text, but the realities of human emotion have to be close to spilling over here, right? But at the same time, you have to think back on what Jacob has done, and you have to kind of laugh at this situation. You feel bad for him because the love story is being interrupted. But you have to kind of think, Jacob, you had this coming, buddy. This is on you. Remember, remember how Jacob deceived his blind father Isaac to receive the blessing? Now the deceiver has been deceived. He was blinded by the night and the veil and the festivities. And what was to rightly be his has been taken away from him. And you have to wonder if Esau heard about this and was delighted to hear how Jacob had been repaid for his deception. You have to wonder oh, you're going to uh, go into my father when he can't see, and uh, you're going to put on some 
clothes of skin to veil your skin? Isn't this funny how Laban sent you in blindly and sent Leah in with a veil? You got yours. He got what he deserved. But regardless of how funny Esau may have found this whole situation to be, it is terrible deception. And so Jacob confronts Laban. There is no excuse for this level of deception and taking advantage of Jacob. But Laban has an excuse. He justifies his deception by blaming their customs. (laughs) Now, I, I think we can probably all imagine Jacob's feelings in this. And I would guess he let Laban know those feelings, I, I, I would gather. This is information, Laban, that would have been useful to me seven years ago. Before I worked seven years, I would have maybe negotiated a shorter period of time for Leah. In fact, it would have been information that would have been useful to me yesterday. I would have, you know, at least tell me this. You know, we could have been going around and trying to find a husband for Leah during these seven years. What have you been doing? Was this the plan all along, Laban? So what do we find? We find that he has come to marry the weak-eyed Leah. But instead of being angry, instead of taking vengeance, we see that Jacob does something here. He can't change the fact that he's married to Leah now. This can't be undone. And so Laban takes advantage of the situation. He's like, hey, I got seven years of labor for one daughter. I bet I can get seven years for the other. So he tells Jacob to complete the week of the wedding celebration with Leah, and then he will let him marry Rachel the next week. And Jacob loved Rachel, and so he agreed to the terms. The week was completed, and then another wedding celebration took place. And the wedding guests must have loved that. We party for a whole week, and then we're partying for a second week. What an arrangement. But we're going to find that the polygamy that we see here is going to create serious problems. God will work through the issues of human sin, as he always does. God will accomplish his purposes, but the sin, the deception that we see here makes the life of these uh, people here in Genesis messy. Because it's sinful. Sin has gummed up the works. But as the passage concludes, we see that the love that Jacob had for Rachel was great. He served for 14 years total to have her hand in marriage. Many times I I said that we struggle with what to do with Jacob in these stories that we find him in, right? He's a scoundrel. He's not a very sympathetic character. But here, finally, I... I think we finally are finding a point where we can have a soft spot for Jacob. He's sort of a sympathetic character, finally. He's the hero in the love story who does everything to get the girl. Through all the deception and the scandal and the sin, he desires a bride, and he does what it takes to obtain it. And that's what I want us to consider as we think about how to apply this passage this morning. As I mentioned previously, this passage points us to the love that Christ has for his bride, the church. There are times in our lives where we wonder, does anyone love us? There are even times where we may doubt the love of God for us. But as this passage points us to, we see Jesus, and we think about his servanthood 
the, how he was a savior for us, and he served us to save us. And so we know that Jesus loves us. And you've heard me say this before. When we say that God loves us or that Jesus loves us, these aren't empty words. This isn't an ethereal, floaty, out there somewhere concept. The love of God for you, the love of Jesus for you is, is more than a being who lives beyond the clouds having warm feelings for you. As Christians, when we, when we say that Jesus loves you, what we're saying is something that has substantial potency to it. Because just as Jacob desired his bride and served 14 years for her, so Christ also served to acquire his bride. He served by leaving the glory of heaven to take on flesh and to live a life of suffering. He served us in his death when he bore the wrath of God for our sin. He served us by rising from the dead and guaranteeing eternal life for us. And he is still serving us right now in this moment, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. Christ served to acquire his bride. And he has not stopped serving us. And so in any and every circumstance of our life, we know for sure that the love of God for us is real because it's something that he passionately pursued, that he was a servant and sacrificially acquired that prize for himself, his bride, you, the church. And so may the love of God for the church, his bride, cause us to love one another and to live in peace that we might bring glory to God and share this real and passionate love that God has for his people with a lost and dying world, a world that is looking for love wherever it can find it. We have a true love in what God did for us in Christ to share. So may we share that, knowing that the world desperately needs love and the greatest place that they can find it is in their servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.